Hey everyone and welcome to the show. Uh, today I'm going to switch gears again and bring it back to law enforcement uh, to talk about a subject that I'm very passionate about within the field and that's training or the absolute lack thereof. Uh, so today we're going to specifically talk about active shooter training for patrol officers. Right. Prior to the Columbine school shooting in 1999, uh, as far as I know, there really wasn't any formal, widespread, focused active shooter training for patrol cops, even though Columbine uh, was not the first mass shooting that we had here in the United States at the time. All right. Law enforcement tends to be very reactionary, very knee-jerk, right? and rarely for positive change. And usually the knee-jerk uh, reactions lead to more overlapping rules and restrictions, uh, hence the reason the NYPD patrol guide now weighs about 87 pounds, all right? Uh, positive changes or reforms are usually, not all the time, but usually brought about because some notable incident uh, sends shockwaves through an agency or through the field as a whole, um, and that usually is what leads to change, uh, positive change at least. Positive change is usually not the result of some progressive forward-thinking leadership. At least that's been my experience working in the NYPD, uh, which had more of an institutionalized um, approach amongst executives than maybe some other departments, all right? Um, now, I would say that not all of this change is exactly beneficial or even sensible at times, um, especially as of late. But nevertheless, the law enforcement response um, or the response by law enforcement to Columbine, uh, it, it drew a lot of attention uh, to the accepted practice at the time for patrol officers, um, which was citing a lack of training and tools to essentially isolate contain and wait for SWAT, that this was a job for SWAT. And a lot of the review of that incident drove uh, a lot of the positive change that we see today in training how law enforcement is expected to respond to an active shooter event. And so now we have some nationally recognized uh, active shooter you know, training programs like ALERT through Texas State University or laser through Louisiana State University. Uh, and there is a, a countless number of either agency-specific programs or training that is offered by private training companies. Uh, even though I was never fully sold on the alert tactics, uh, programs like alert at least gave a foundation for law enforcement instructors to teach from. Um, Alert covers facets of active shooter response, uh, which are often not covered by other programs. And it it standardized patrol tactics amongst, you know, neighboring departments that provide mutual aid to one another. Uh, so, you know, in the event of, of a, a larger scale incident, um, they were able to link up at an incident like that. And, and since they were all kind of running plays from the same playbook, um, it gave departments, neighboring jurisdictions, the ability to work together, even if they had never trained together because they were all using the same tactics. Now, the alert level one class, um, which is the basic active shooter response class that is given to patrol officers, it, it's a two day long class, all right? Two days to learn how to respond to active shooters, all right? Let's let's forget about active shooters um, for a minute. Let's forget about active shooter response for a minute. Uh, pick a sport or a hobby that you enjoy, okay? Baseball, basketball, golf, basket weaving, whatever. Doesn't matter, all right? And let's say that you sign up for a class that is taught by a really good instructor. Uh, generally, by the end of the class, what happens, right? generally, hopefully, your performance improves, okay? Sometimes that improvement is remarkable. And other times you are making, you know, finite improvements to maybe one small part of the overall skill set. But 
Either way, you are making improvements and you're gaining confidence in your performance because you are seeing your performance improve. All right. Now, what happens if you continue to spend time practicing the skills required for any of these sports or hobbies? All right. You're generally going to, at a minimum, maintain a level of proficiency. If not, continue to improve because you continue to build upon, you know, the foundation that was laid in your initial training. And hopefully your performance will continue to improve. Right. So, for example, I'm I am terrible at golf. And because I recognize I'm terrible at golf and I can admit to myself that I'm terrible at golf, um, I can acknowledge that I need some guidance and instruction. And so, you know, I decide to pay a lot of money for a five day golf clinic given by, let's say, Tiger Woods. And during my time with Tiger, he works with me to maybe refine my grip or clean up my swing or whatever, you know, needs to be done. And after a lot of repetitions over those five days, my golf game has clearly improved. And so after the clinic, I'm feeling pretty good about my golf game. All right. Uh, and when it's all over, I, I, I go back home and unfortunately I get back to normal life, right? Work, responsibilities at home, you know, coming on here to rant about whatever topic is on my mind for the week. Um, and, you know, the next thing you know, a year goes by and I haven't touched my golf clubs, right? So the next time that I get the chance to go and pick up my golf clubs to go play, am I going to be able to just pick up like right where I left off a year ago? Or am I going to need to go back to essentially the beginning of day one of the clinic um, to work through, you know, some of the bad habits I had before um, to get back up to where I was by day five. And now, because I only have one day, one free day to play a round of golf, I now have to cram five days of learning I did a year ago uh into this one day to get the most out of that one day and and hope that I can at least get back to where I was, all right? So for anyone who plays a sport or has a hobby that involves any semblance of skill, you know, tell me any sport or hobby that you do really, really good that you only do once a year, all right? Tactics work in law enforcement. It, it's like a sport. It's it's basically a contact sport with guns, okay? And to be really good at it, it requires the same amount of quality training and time that it takes to be good at any sport. All right. When I when I was in ESU, um, I had the opportunity to spend some time uh, training up you know, two units within the department, uh, uh, our strategic response group and the critical response command, um, both of which were, you know, formed by the department. Uh, and they were equipped with helmets and plate carriers and rifles. And they were essentially designed as a, a quick reaction asset in the event of an active shooter. You know, the department was able to bring individuals with some more training and some better equipment to the scene of an incident as quickly as possible. So after these officers successfully completed the M4 school at the outdoor range where they learned how to shoot uh, the M4, you know, they came to us and we were given two days to train them up on small unit tactics and team movements while deploying rifles, um, which at the time we knew and to this day I still say was nowhere near enough time for that kind of initial training, you know, to these units credit, they did build a, a very robust refresher training program. You know, each had their own instructor cadre who were mentored by members of ESU and each SRG and CRC officer would train quarterly, you know, with their training cadre to maintain a level of proficiency required for such a task. Um, and that is far more than most places do. So, you know, there was a kudos to them for that. All right. That 
training experience um, led me to take an interest in helping, you know, refine our own active shooter training for ESU members. And the final product of that focused on not just the initial response to the event and the mitigation of the threat, but it also looked at things like incident command and management, you know, integration with our support units uh, and other department resources like our, our tactical bomb techs from our bomb squad uh, and the integration of rescue task force. You know, so the final product, it was a 40 hour course that was delivered over five days. And for me, one of the most satisfying parts of my role as, you know, an instructor in the program was seeing the remarkable progression of performance from day one to day five. Um, it, it was truly amazing to see both individual performance and team performance and proficiency improve dramatically. All right. It was almost like at some point in the program, there was this collective aha moment amongst everyone and everything just clicked. And by day five, if an incident happened the next day, I was really confident that every single person who just spent, you know, 40 hours training their asses off would have outperformed any expectations. Um, and if any of you listening are instructors or you're someone who has taken a really good active shooter response course, you know, and I have to add that really good disclaimer because there's some really bad programs out there. Um, I I'm sure you know what I'm talking about in terms of seeing progression, all right? At the end of it, you know, the one overwhelmingly continuous critique um, that we got from the program was, we need more, we want more. Five days is not enough. And these were guys and girls, some of whom had been in ESU for a considerable amount of time and had a considerable amount of real world tactical experience saying five days is not enough. We need more. So if you have individuals like that saying five days is not enough, we need more. Is two days of training really preparing a new inexperienced patrol officer for such an event? All right. I, I personally obviously don't think it's anywhere near close to what should be required, but I, I would be curious to hear your thoughts and experiences. Um, you know, so so what happens when we finish training, right? Just similar to the golf clinic, you know, whether it's two days or five days when it's all done, you know, we we resume patrol and we go back to our, you know, day-to-day -day routine, which for the overwhelming majority of us doesn't frequently involve, you know, dynamic large structure clearance, interdicting active shooters and managing the integration of EMS resources to treat multiple casualties, you know, which means that over time, these perishable skill sets that we just learned, they start to fade little by little as time goes on. So, you know, at, at what frequency and what duration does your agency have officers attend refresher training? All right. I, before, you know, filming this show, just kind of randomly sampled uh, a bunch of colleagues who work in various agencies all over the country to see how often patrol cops uh, in their departments attended active shooter response refresher training. And, you know, I, I wasn't surprised by most of the answers I received. Um, you know, most said that their agency conducts eight hours of refresher training a year, you know, one day a year. Um, some said that they get refresher training every two or three years. And, you know, I had one or two who responded by saying, you know, what's that? And kind of sarcastically joking that they don't do any, you know, ongoing refresher training. It's not a, a priority for their department. So, you know, realistically, let's just go with with one day a year spent on active shooter refresher training. You know, I asked the question before. I'll ask it again. Can you identify something you're really, really good at that you only do once a year? All right. In order for professional athletes to perform at the level that they do, it requires hours and hours of continual practice. And I would tend to think that most athletes are training and preparing with the big game at the forefront of their mind, right? Whether it's the Super Bowl, the World Series, the Stanley Cup, you know, pick your sport, okay? 
Can you tell me one football team that spends eight hours a year training for the Super Bowl, practicing for the Super Bowl? All right. In the law enforcement world, the complexity and the significance of an active shooter event, you know, we're talking about the Super Bowl of critical incidents that on average we're spending one day a year training for. All right. See, the, the problem with training on something once a year is rarely do you ever progress, you know, because by the time a year goes by and you go to training again, you're typically starting from ground zero. So you can never advance your training, right? Now, I'm not talking advanced training. In, in, you know, in my opinion, there's really no such thing as advanced tactics, okay? But when you haven't done just basic room entry and clearing training in a year, because that's where most law enforcement officers are going to get basic room entry and clearing training. It's during their annual active shooter training, you know, refreshers. Usually that's where you have to start off now, right? Reviewing very basic two-person and four-person room entries, you know, so they can hopefully get back to being performed with an unconscious competence, all right? Then you have to cover hallway movements and how to negotiate hallway intersections and how to negotiate stairwells and deconfliction and link-up procedures and breaching and integration of rescue task force civilian movement and management, any lunch or dinner, you know, whatever it is. So all of that in eight hours. So how much are you really accomplishing? You know, I had been a career paramedic for four years before I became a police officer. All right. I could start IVs in my sleep. But when I got hired by the police department, you know, I had a six month academy and then a year you know, probation on the street before I was allowed to work any kind of off-duty employment. And so a year and a half went by um, without starting an IV on anyone. And despite the fact that I had started a countless number of IVs over the four years prior to that, when I started working on an ambulance again, there was an obvious degradation in my IV skills. Um and I didn't have the same level of confidence, right, when it came to, you know, starting IVs. When I was back on the ambulance working, uh, you know, it took a little bit of time uh, for me to get back to kind of where I left off a year and a half prior, right? So frequency and duration is a challenge, but it's not the only challenge when it comes to training, okay? Because there's, there's other issues out there, okay? There are issues, you know, regarding the quality of certain programs and instructors, right? There's that old saying, uh, you know, in, in law enforcement and maybe just in general, but, you know, as the saying goes, those who cannot do teach. And there unfortunately is some truth to that, okay? Um, not all instructors, but you know, the instructors out there that I'm talking about. Okay. The reality is that fortunately, you know, most police officers will go through their entire career without ever responding to an active shooter event. But that means that most instructors are not teaching from a perspective of personal experience, but rather they are regurgitating information that was given to them you know, in their instructor manual or guide um, or from a PowerPoint after taking a five-day train-the-trainer class, you know, given by a training organization, right? Now, I am not making the argument that the only way you can be a good active shooter response instructor is to have actually responded to an active shooter event yourself, right? But I am making the argument that just because you took a five-day train-the-trainer class and have the piece of paper hanging on your wall, you know, and that you can regurgitate all of the information, you know, from the manual, it it does not make you an expert, all right? I, I don't consider myself to be an expert by any means, okay? Um, but I do I do chuckle when I see these guys on the news, you know, or, or on social media claiming to be, you know, active shooter experts. Like, what, what does that even mean? Okay. I get it. Like, from a business perspective, it's, it's a marketing thing. Okay. And it gets you on the news and everything else. But, 
You know, for law enforcement instructors, at the end of the day, unless you have responded to an active shooter event yourself, okay, realistically, you are more than likely at the same level of operational experience, if not less, than some of the people that you're teaching, okay? You know, when we when we look at the police response to Uvalde, and without getting down a rabbit hole about that, because that obviously was, you know, months ago at this point, but... The one point that I want to bring up from it is, you know, the media was reporting on how these officers, you know, they they just had active shooter training, you know, just two months before the incident. OK, and they're saying that with the expectation that the response should have been better because they were just trained. Right. For me, the term training in itself is descriptive of nothing. All right. The first question I asked myself when I read that was, did their training consist of the same check the box training that law enforcement notoriously excels at providing for its officers? Okay. If your agency is not providing you with quality training, it means nothing then. And if you're not getting that quality training, you know, from your agency, a lot of officers, they go to seek it elsewhere. Okay. Um, quality training is is sometimes hard to come by, but it's definitely out there and it can have a profound impact. All right. On improving your personal performance. Okay. The downside to seeking outside training is, you know, when it comes to working in a team environment, everyone has to be playing from the same page in the playbook. And if you're the only one deviating from your department's, you know, SOPs or tactics, techniques and procedures because you know, you saw some training on your own and you you liked what you saw and you you were fully sold on whatever tactic it was and you decide to do something that's different from what everyone else is doing, it can have a very harmful effect on the overall fluidity of the team and team performance if if no one else knows what you're doing, okay? You know, we talk a lot about effective communication through body language and, you know, purposeful movement. And when you're doing things that nobody knows what you're doing or why you're doing it, it leads to a breakdown in communication, which then affects the overall team performance. All right. Individuals with military backgrounds, especially those who served in direct action units, you know, they clearly have the requisite real life experience. Maybe not all, but some or I shouldn't say some, most, all right, have the requisite real life experience, you know, and, and I know personally, like I have learned so much about the realities of, of being in a gunfight from individuals who, who have been there and done that, you know, because I've never experienced that. Um, and so training organizations comprise of individuals, you know, who have the requisite military background, are a valuable resource for teaching tactics and the realities of, of deadly force encounters, all right? But on the flip side, they often lack the insight and perspective from the role of a civilian law enforcement officer, you know, in the considerations that are unique to the profession and how a law enforcement officer or how a law enforcement response will look in real life, all right? More often than not, you're uh, you know you're not going to have like four officers showing up in, at an incident at the same time, or a full twenty-person SWAT team showing up all together, kitted up and ready to go. Unless you have you know an incident like San Bernardino, where you know the SWAT team just happened to be training together, you know that day when the incident happened, you know in close proximity. So. For a lot of agencies, it you know, it's going to be singles and doubles arriving to the incident at staggered intervals, right? So, you know, and then obviously there's issues of rules of engagement and identifying yourself and just other things that are very law enforcement centric, okay, that were not necessarily concerns when certain instructors were in, you know, in their role in the military, right? So some of the best training that I've seen delivered, you know, is where there's a mix of experienced military individuals and experienced law enforcement officers, 
you know, kind of collaborating together on the delivery of a program that addresses all of these intricacies and, and realities, all right? Um, Self-initiated training, you know, with officers in your department or on your shift or your partner or people who you may work with regularly is is great, okay? Um, and for a lot of people, they rely on, you know, self-initiated training. I, I know that I did, okay? Um, but there's always the potential for it to do more harm than good if you are training improper, you know, tactics, techniques, procedures, and burning in bad repetitions and not holding yourself and your partners accountable for your mistakes, okay? Training under the the watchful eye of an experienced and knowledgeable instructor uh, who, who really knows what they're looking at and can answer all of the why and what if questions, you know, will ensure that you are on the right path and making the most of precious training time, all right? Like I said, speaking personally, if it wasn't for self-initiated training, um, you know, with with the guys that I worked with, um, I, I don't feel like I would have been able to function at a level necessary to respond to such an event, okay? Because the, the training was just not provided to me by the department. And the day-to-day -day tactical work that I was doing um, did not reflect or represent, like, specifically this type of an event, all right? Does your training replicate the potential realities of an active shooter event in your jurisdiction, all right? Do, do you get the opportunity to practice moving through large crowds of people, right? It's easy to do super sexy, high speed, you know, perfect tactics, um, you know, when, when the school or building that you're training is completely empty and there's nobody in the halls, there's nobody running at you, there's nobody screaming and yelling, uh, you know, and everything else, Okay. Um, so do we, do you have the opportunity to add that stimulus into your training to experience what that's like? Do you train in the same location every year? Are you limited to one school or one tack house or something like that to do your training? All right. I know when I do tactics training and we've, you know, exhausted entering and clearing a, a particular, you know, particular room, um, usually all we have to do is either pick a secondary entry point, right, or just move some of the barricades or, you know, obstructions, furniture um, in the room. And for a lot of people, you know, it's like it's the first time they've been in there when you make these little changes, even though they've hit the same room a dozen times. So it doesn't take much to change up your training, okay? Um my recommendation would be to take advantage of the opportunities that present themselves to you to train in different environments. Because, you know, unless the active shooter happens in that same school or building, you know, or your tack house uh, that you've been, you know, training in, you know, for years, um, you're going to have a difficult time um, reading a new environment you know, because you've become so conditioned to the layout of where you spend most of your time training. You know, when you start training in different environments and you start hitting different locations and stuff like that, you start building up that mental Rolodex that, you know, when you experience or see something in a building you've never been in before, hopefully you can kind of recollect back to something that is familiar that you've done in another location. And that will help you kind of solve these tactical problems sort of on the fly, all right? And if there are any, you know, teachers or school administrators, principals, business owners, real estate people listening, you know, reach out to your local law enforcement and, and offer them the opportunity um, to come and train at your building, okay? You can set whatever limitations you want to ensure that, you know, that property isn't damaged or, or destroyed, you know, but giving them the opportunity to move through a new space is going to help prepare them to navigate, you know, future unfamiliar environments. All right. Um, and it gives them the opportunity to become familiar with your building, which is going to be a benefit to you. You know, they'll get to see the unique challenges that they might have to face if they ever had to respond to your building in real life. Okay. And it gives them the opportunity to work through these challenges, you know, before something happens for real. Okay. Um, I know that they'll appreciate it. So 
does your initial or refresher refresher active shooter training, you know, does it include breaching? Okay. Um, realistically, you you can't do much to solve the problem if you can't get into the location or into the room where the shooter is located. And the first time using manual tools to breach a locked door, um, it should not be under the stress of a real event. Okay. You know, reading, reading a door on the approach and selecting the right tool and technique for the job is another one of those things that needs to be done with an unconscious competence. All right. The longer that it takes you to read a door, the longer it takes you to select the right tool, the longer it takes you to utilize the appropriate technique to defeat that breaching problem is wasted time that, you know, individuals on the other side of the door, they, they might not have the luxury of that wasted time. All right. So instead of waiting for the event to figure all of this out under stress, is that a part of your current training? Do you practice deconfliction so we can, you know, mitigate the risk of a blue on blue friendly fire incident? Um, are the deconfliction procedures, you know, standardized within your agency and even maybe the surrounding agencies, um, since they may be showing up as a mutual aid asset to the same event. Okay. Um, I always say that, you know, it, it's not the one bad guy with a gun inside of the building that concerned me, but it was the 100 good guys with guns who were, you know, all in hunting mode that I felt was more of a concern, uh, in terms of, you know, a friendly fire incident. So, you know, uh, like I said before, like in most agencies, officers are going to be arriving to the event, to the incident in waves, um, which means we are going to have officers, you know, possibly moving through a structure from different entry points and in different parts of the building, you know, all moving with what coordination? Do you have a means of coordinating those movements? You know, do you train to mitigate the risk of a friendly fire incident through deconfliction procedures. And, you know, by holding officers accountable for positive target identification, a, a blue on blue um, incident in, in training, uh, obviously that's where we want to have it, but it, it's, it's completely unacceptable. Okay. Um, and so if that happens, are we holding those police officers accountable and accountable can mean, you know, retraining or something like that, um, you know, it doesn't always have to mean, um, you know, dismissal fr from a department, but it's something that does require um, attention. All right. You know, speaking of accountability, do you hold yourself or others accountable for rounds that you discharge during training? Um, I I've witnessed some active shooter training, you know, programs before that turned into nothing more than a, a, a literal paintball match, you know, with little to no accountability, all right? This is an unprofessional way of doing business, all right? In real life, we are accountable for every single round that leaves our firearm. So hold yourself, hold your coworkers to the same standards in training, okay? Engaging no-shoot targets in training is completely unacceptable, all right? And the same goes for blatantly missing targets. Unacceptable, okay, for a number of reasons. Number one, you're not doing anything to solve the problem. Number two, the backdrop to those misses could be innocent people, all right? The shot placement in training should be reflective of what is required to stop an armed individual who is actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill innocent people, all right? Focus on the accuracy first, not speed. Focus on the accuracy first by applying well-placed shots that are the result of a clear sight picture. And with time and training, the speed will come, okay? To that note, when we talk about marksmanship and deadly force encounters, do your training scenarios always end with a gunfight? By doing so, are we pre-programming our officers' minds for a gunfight every single time they go into a scenario? Okay. Um, the reality is that they're going to encounter a lot more people inside of the building who are unarmed, innocent, friendly people. Um, 
And so being able to properly identify shoot and no shoot scenarios is, is just as important as the marksmanship portion of the training, you know, as is determining when it is appropriate to have the, the throttle forward and to assume risk and essentially push the fight. Um, and when it is appropriate to throttle back and start to utilize, you know, tactics, techniques, and procedures that are designed to mitigate risk to the officers uh, while still achieving the objective goal of saving lives. All right. All of these variables should be introduced in training um, to help give police officers a broader understanding of the big picture, which will help make them, you know, help them make better decisions in real life if they understand why. Okay. There is nothing worse than asking an instructor why. And the answer that you get is, well, because that's how we do things, or that's how we've always done it, or because I said so. All right. Those answers to the question why, all that tells me is that you don't know why you're teaching a particular, you know, technique or tactic or having me do a certain thing because you can't even explain it to me. And so I I personally find it difficult, you know, taking instruction um, from an instructor that came and explained to me why they're teaching what they're teaching. I, I have a hard time taking it serious. And the important part about understanding why and, and, and the reason why you should always ask why is because, you know, one day you might need to articulate why you did something. And training is where you start to develop an understanding and being able to answer those questions from a position of knowledge. All right. So, you know, any instructor who gives you the answer of um, because that's how we do things or because I said so or, you know, to me, they're not. Unfortunately, I have a hard time taking them serious. And, you know, the, the bill of goods that they're selling me is just is not worth it. All right. Um, not holding ourselves accountable, you know, results in in the Dunning-Kruger effect, OK, which is rampant in law enforcement. All right. Uh, for those of you that don't know, the Dunning-Kruger effect is a, a cognitive bias whereby, you know, people with low ability, expertise or experience regarding a, a specific task or, you know, an area of knowledge, they they tend to overestimate their ability or knowledge. OK, does, does that sound like anyone, you know, or work with? Because, you know, well, I, I know a couple of those people. All right. Now. I usually associate this with like some of the the Instagram tactical influencers out there, you know, with all their their fancy high speed gear, but they, you know, they lack the real world experience to to back up their over inflated egos and personal sense of awesomeness. Uh, but I digress, right? So, as instructors, um, we really do a disservice to our students when. You know, we run officers through scenarios and don't hold them accountable and don't give honest, critical feedback on either their individual or collective performance. All right. Um, you know, high-fiving each other after a bad run and, and talking about how awesome we are without addressing or even acknowledging areas where our performance could be improved um, you know, this leads to the anytime baby mentality, you know, even though our self-perceived ability and ego um, does not match our performance. All right. Now, to the contrary of that, the, you know, the, the in my eyes, the, the perfect run, it, it doesn't exist. OK, I, I think the idea of a perfect run is a, is a complete fallacy. All right. And. I always tell guys that, you know, whether it was in training or after a, a live op when I was still working, you know, that because the perfect run doesn't exist, I, I'm probably going to address something, right? No matter how small it might be, where we can make an improvement, right? And so I tell people that, you know, if I'm nitpicking on little things, that it's it's actually a compliment, Right, because it means that all of the big picture stuff either meets or exceeds standards. All right. So I think in, in every run, there is always something that can be improved upon or learned. Right. 
So strive to achieve the perfect run, but realize that mistakes are going to happen. And and that's okay because in real life, like mistakes are going to happen and we're not going to have the luxury of, you know, calling a timeout. Okay. For me, the more important thing is not executing a, a perfect run, right? But that when the inevitable, you know, the inevitable mistakes uh, happen, that we can identify them and fix them quickly because that's what has to happen in real life. All right. And, you know, once again, we're really talking about, you know, the smaller mistakes that don't generally have life threatening consequences to them. Okay. Obviously, mistakes, they're, you know, they come in varying levels of significance. All right. Is your training reflective of your general manpower? All right. See a lot of smaller agencies, you know, they train on four person movements, um, which I don't think is a bad thing. And it is a, a possibility for them to move as a four person team. But the more likely reality is that their response to the initial uh, incident might be nothing more than, you know, a one or two person response. Okay. Um, in a city like New York, it's it's very easy to put for police officers uh, on a problem very quickly. It's it's very easy, you know, for them to put 400 police officers on a problem um, very quickly and somewhat simultaneously. Uh, but, you know, with smaller departments um, or departments that cover very wide geographic areas where your backup is, you know, 20 minutes away, that may not be the case. And your training needs to reflect on the realities of your manpower and your environment. All right. Uh, this is an important one. Okay. Does your yearly active shooter training include the executive leadership within your agency? All right. I would assume for most of us, the answer to that question is no. All right. Um, the executive leadership, you know, your chiefs and executives, they are going to play a role in this too. All right. I, I think it's safe to say and safe to assume that for most agencies, um, once your police chief arrives on scene, that they are going to assume the role of the law enforcement incident commander, and they will be making critical decisions uh, that will have an overall effect on the outcome of the incident. Uh, this is going to be a whole other topic for another show, okay? But executives need to be familiar with the basic tenets of active shooter response, you know, as well as understanding how to effectively interpret whether or not the incident requires aggressive moves by law enforcement to preserve life, okay? Or if we can take that throttle and pull it back, focus on mitigating risk, um, and attempt to strive for a peaceful resolution, okay? I believe that in any incident, there's a time and place for both, um, and, and not all incidents, you know, will be able to be resolved peacefully, okay? And as law enforcement officers, resolution sometimes requires aggressive moves on the part of law enforcement to mitigate the threat and to preserve life, all right? So executives need to be well-versed in addressing safety priorities or the priorities of life um, so that they can make informed decisions about what actions are appropriate and, you know, then can articulate from a position of knowledge afterwards, you know, a position of knowledge and industry standards afterwards in explaining why certain actions were either taken or not taken. All right. Now, you don't really have an active shooter event unless you have victims, okay? And that means that emergency medical services are going to be present, you know, at the incident as well. So how much of your yearly training incorporates these assets, all right? Because of, of time constraints, one of the really big pitfalls of yearly active shooter training is that it typically only focuses on one part of the incident, and that's stopping the shooter. Right now, that's obviously an extremely important part of the response. But from a decision making and management standpoint, stopping the shooter is the easy part. Right, find the girl, girl, the, find the uh, the guy or girl that's that's killing or attempting to kill people, and stop them by whatever means necessary. All right, we shoot them, we force them to self terminate, they surrender to us, we take them into custody. You know, we have them isolating, contained to a part of the building where they don't have access to any more victims. Whatever it is, 
We do what we need to do initially to stop the killing, okay? Once we make that transition from stopping the killing to stopping the dying, it becomes much more complex from a management perspective. You know, once we start to focus on more deliberate clearance and establishing warm corridors for EMS or a rescue task force to operate in, right? Those victims present, they may potentially need rapid life-saving emergency medical care, triage, transport, and removal to a medical facility for definitive care. And there are a lot of moving parts in this phase that requires the integration of emergency medical services into the incident, all right? Unfortunately, it is very commonplace to see the two separate entities, law enforcement and EMS, never training together, right? EMS does their training separate from the police department, and the police do their their, uh, their training separate without ever incorporating EMS. And then the expectation is that at the scene of a dynamic and fluid event as significant as an active shooter incident that all the parties involved are going to be able to magically just work fluently, you know, fluidly together. And that's just not realistic. All right. That would be the equivalent of like the New York Giants offense, each practicing on their own and then expecting that on Sunday game day or Monday night football, that they're going to work seamlessly together, you know, uh, out on the field. Okay. It's just not realistic. So, Include fire and EMS in your training, okay? It should help to build a better working relationship. It should instill some confidence um, for you that they understand their role and how to integrate and stay within their lane. And it should instill some confidence in them that you are going to provide them the needed security and protection that's required for them to feel comfortable going into an incident, all right? The rescue task force concept uh, is a good concept, but there's a lot of moving parts to it. And the only way to work out a good response protocol and procedure is to actually put it into play and see where the deficiencies are and how we can fix it. All right. So one day a year, an eight-hour workday, which is typically going to be narrowed down to seven hours of training time once you take out an hour meal, we need to cover the basic fundamentals of active shooter response, room entry and clearing, hallway movements, stairwell movements, all with one, two, three, four officers, all right? Breaching, integration of other assets like rescue task force, executive leadership and tactical decision-making, like how is that even remotely possible to legitimately cover all of that in seven hours? And even if we could, is seven hours of annual training enough? Now, I don't know the answer to this, but how much training is needed for the average patrol officer to maintain a competent level of performance? A strong comprehension of basic principles and maintain an ability to overcome basic challenge challenges or complexities that they may face, okay? If I had it my way, I would say that police officers should train at minimum once a month, right? But now, how does a department like the NYPD, a department of 35,000 people, train everyone once a month, okay? It's a logistical nightmare. And... For a lot of agencies, I understand the challenges of conducting continual active shooter training. You know, there's manpower issues, there's overtime budgets, there's patrol coverage that takes priority, there's other required in-service training, you know, there may be a lack of availability of instructors and training venues and so on, right? So all of these factors, coupled with the assessment by most police departments that the likelihood of them having to respond to an active shooter incident is relatively low, you know, both play a role in most agencies resorting to training, you know, once a year or, or not at all, all right? It, in my last year with the police department, I received more training on EEO and DEI related topics than I did anything related to my actual job functions, right? So now listen, I, I understand that that training is necessary, and I'm not saying that that training should not be done, but what I 
am saying or what I'm asking is, you know, should that take priority over training the perishable skills that I was expected to perform in a chaotic, high-stress environment? So if you're in a position within your department, okay, to make decisions on the frequency and intensity of training, strive to get your officers as much training as possible, okay? The, the benefits and positive effects of continuously, uh, you know, con continually practicing this type of response, it's going to bleed over into other aspects of their day-to-day -day work, okay? When police officers are stress inoculated, they are confident in their abilities, and they can perform tasks with an unconscious competence, it generally, generally leads to an improved ability for these officers to remain calm, process their environment, you know, process what is going on around them, which ultimately is going to lead to better decision-making, okay? especially in the application of deadly physical force, all right? I understand uh, that there is a push by some to reimagine policing, okay? In my opinion, the reality is that, you know, the world, it can be a dangerous place, all right? And there are individuals out there who wish to do harm, okay? They wish to do, to, to do harm to those who, who can't defend themselves, and we need good police officers, good people who are willing to do bad things to bad people when it is appropriate to do so. And that requires police officers who are properly trained and prepared for what is our version of the Super Bowl. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe, keep training. We'll talk to you soon.